Okay, we're good to go. Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. Lovely to have you with us today. We are in Esther chapter 3 and at the end of last time we looked at Mordecai who is the um, uncle of Esther and right at the end of the section at the end of chapter 2 he has discovered a plot to kill um, the king and he's foiled that by reporting that to Esther and it's been written in down in the books of good deeds that Mordecai has supported the king and stopped him being killed. Now, then there's a contrast because at the beginning of this next chapter, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, who is the king's uh, favourite at this point in time. So, ladies, I just wondered if you can throw any light for us on what's going on there. Why is Mordecai very loyal to the king at the end of chapter two and then at the beginning of chapter three refuses to bow to Haman? I think we need to know some of the background, the geeky background here, don't we? You know, whenever the Bible introduces people by name and with a characteristic, it's important, isn't it? So, you know, Mordecai was introduced as the Jew, the Benjamin, Benjaminite, and now Haman has been introduced here in verse uh, one of chapter three as Haman the Agite. And um, so the history and the readers, the original readers of this would have gone, oh my goodness, he's an enemy of God just by that description. Because uh, Agag was the king of the Amalekites at the time of Saul. And the Agagites were like the first people of the world to try and attack and destroy God's people after they'd got into the promised land. Agag, the the king, was um, when Saul attacked the Amalekites, Agag is the king that Saul didn't kill, even though he was specifically told to by God, told to wipe everybody out. Saul chose to go against God's specific instructions. And basically, ever since then, uh, Agites um, has been used as like a term for God's enemy, a generic term for somebody who's identified as an enemy of God. So immediately in that first verse there, people reading it originally would have gone, oh my word, this man is bad news and he's going to be a problem for Esther and Mordecai. I I guess it's probably worth just hitting this out there. It's pretty hard for us to read these sort of passages, isn't it, where that there's that sort of history of they were supposed to kill them and they didn't and the sort of as have you struggled with that this week as you've been studying this and reading it that whole old testament bloody history of god's people um i didn't really think about it to be honest when i was reading it but actually now you mention it i did i think in the end actually sam didn't samuel end up killing that king himself the prophet Samuel ended up king, killing him. And yeah, I definitely do. When I read the Old Testament, it's very gory, isn't it? And and the way that justice, God's justice is carried out often against, you know, whole nations, including women and children. I do struggle, struggle with that. Um, but you can see now, can't you, that that stuff that Saul didn't do way back then is now going to result in the killing of a whole load more people um here and I guess God sees that big picture doesn't he and he sees that there's going to be a huge well a potential genocide that's going to happen 
um, and that's why he did it. But to at that time, you can kind of think, oh, well, Saul had mercy on them, didn't he? And it's hard, isn't it? I think I just struggle with all of that kind of violence in the Old Testament, but you can kind of see what's going on, can't you? Yeah, I, I guess it's just worth throwing out there, isn't it, that it's quite it's hard for us and it's unpalatable to us in our culture today. And yet, yeah, you're right, Mary, that, that following God's decrees and what God asks us to do is um, always the right thing to do, isn't it, even though it's difficult. And I guess it wasn't difficult in the same way for them because they were living in that culture, weren't they, where that was normal and that was a normal way for justice to be executed. And this kind of ancient hatred that these, so Haman and Mordecai had between them, I don't think we really have that so much these days in the UK, but actually worldwide, it is a big thing. It still happens. Like who you, your clan or your tribe or your um, class very much depends who you're nice to and who you're not nice to. I think we've lost some of that in our culture and it's probably a good thing, Um but these guys were sworn enemies. And, and yeah, you get um, Mordecai refuses to uh, kneel down and pay honor to Haman, doesn't he? And I, I spent some time thinking about that because I was like, does that mean that, he, that Haman wants him to worship him? Or does Haman just want, you know, some kind of honor from him? Um, because in one way, it, basically, I was wondering whether Mordecai was acting out of kind of devotion to God, like, no, I'm not going to worship anyone else, or whether kind of just this more, this identity thing that he has, I'm a Jew and I'm never going to bow to an Amalekite. I was pondering that. I wondered what you guys thought. I guess I was just struck by it. The text isn't clear, is it? All it tells us in the text is that it's because he was a Jew. So, I, yeah, I struggled really to know exactly what was going on because all we know is it's his he's acting out of his Jewishness, but that could be spiritual or that could be cultural, couldn't it? And it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's told Esther not to reveal her nationality. Um, and yet he's prepared to put his life on the line for his nationality. And in God's providence, that's a really good thing, isn't it? That she doesn't reveal her identity at this point. Yeah, just time and again in this book, they make complex decisions, don't they, that we don't fully understand, and yet God's sovereign over it and does good things through it. I think either way, we can say that Mordecai stood up for what he believed. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when the Bible needs to be specific, it is specific, isn't it? And so uh, I guess, you know, it's interesting to talk about what uh, Mordecai's motives were, but I'm not convinced that it's necessarily the bigger picture. You know, the big the big question here is, you know, when this issue of uh, the Amalekites happened way back when, God said to his people, don't worry, I'm going to wipe, I'm going to wipe them out from the face of the planet. The question for the Jews reading this is, does that promise that God gave his people right back when, does it still have value for people still in exile? Is God going to come through even when people have not done, again, have not done what they were told to do and gone back to Jerusalem? So we see that there's this deep-seated um, animosity between um, Haman and Mordecai. And it's it's two ways, isn't it? Because it feels like he doesn't actually notice, doesn't Haman, that Mordecai is not bowing to him. But when it's pointed out to him, um, 
it feels like the overreaction of all overreactions because he's insulted. It's like a personal insult from Mordecai and he's not happy to insult him back. He plans the genocide of the whole of the Jewish people. Um, so what's going on there? Like that's a massive overreaction, isn't it? From um, Haman. What do we think's going on? I just, I, I just think there's a massive thing of pride here, fear of humiliation. Um, you know, there's this whole thing, isn't it, with um, the king in the first couple of chapters where he's like, this person has disrespected me and therefore this terrible thing must happen. Very similar um, uh, kind of mirroring of what went on with Xerxes in the first couple of chapters when Vashti slighted him. I just found the whole thing very ironic because at the end of chapter two, Mordecai is the one who foils a plot to get the king killed. And uh, his name was written in the book and then traditionally he should have been promoted. But actually the beginning of chapter three is Haman who's been promoted. You know, that really stark contrast. And then yet Haman is annoyed that Mordecai hasn't, hasn't knelt before him. What's... You know, it's just, it, you feel so, I feel so angry on Mordecai's behalf, on the injustice of what's going on. Yeah, I was thinking as well about this, it's similar. And just thinking, isn't it interesting that Haman's annoyed, at, really annoyed at Mordecai, but then he realizes in verse six, he says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He's like, oh, I already hate these people. There's already hatred in his heart, isn't there? Um, so he's like, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill all his people. So it's like this kind of two layers to it, isn't it? There's there's this this surface level hatred of the situation. He feels ashamed. He's going to deal with it. But then he's like, ah, I'm also going to use this to wipe out this entire people that I also hate. It's just this fire of hatred, isn't it? It goes from this little spark to, right, loads of people are going to die now. Yeah, and I think we see that in a bit of detail, don't we, when we look at what he goes to the king and says. Um, I was struck by it, there's, there's some truth in what he says to the king and then there's some half-truth and then there's just some outright lies. Can you Can you pick out any of those for me, ladies, and see... Just how, like Mary was saying, how that hatred just grows. He says a certain people, doesn't he? But it's not a certain people. It's one person. It's only one person who obeys one specific command. Just like Vashti again, one person obeying one specific command is suddenly manipulated and used by the king's advisors for their own ends. And all of a sudden, an entire gender is under an edict women in the first couple of chapters and now again we've got one person making what disobeying one rule and all of a sudden an entire people group is facing annihilation he's clever isn't he Haman? he's quite the politician he kind of butters king xerxes up doesn't he he's first of all he talks about these people they keep themselves separate so in a in an in a huge empire like the Persian Empire, you don't really want different groups of people doing different things. You want people to all be doing the same thing. That's easy. It's easier to run your empire that way. So he's he's like dropping that in there. They keep themselves separate. Yeah, and like Helen said, they do not obey the king's laws. Um, and then he says it's not in the in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So he's saying this is for your sake. 
I want to do this. It's not in your best interest. And then, it, and then he says, um, and I'll give you some money. If you, let me, if you let me do this, I'll give money towards it. And this is a king who's like cash strapped at the moment. He's just lo- lost this war in Greece that we mentioned last week. Um, so he kind of plays, doesn't he, to all the king's weaknesses. Uh, in one, he kind of plays to his pride. Um, he plays to his desire for money and his desire for status and his desire for a kingdom that works very well and smoothly. Um, and he's like, I'll do this thing for you. Um, he's very clever in the way that he, he does this. Yeah. And I guess like you were saying earlier, Mary, that sort of hatred fuels his, um, political mind, doesn't it? Where he's happy to be fast and loose with the truth and almost target the king's weak spots. Yeah, and I just think as well, the, you know, Haman's sort of desperate need for honour and respect, coupled with, in the end, it's absolute power. You know, when you're given the king's signet ring, it's effectively the king saying, you have all my power because the signet ring was the seal. You know, so this craving and this need for honour and respect coupled with that absolute power, I think you can look at throughout the whole of history Um, But even in the Bible and see how that always results in oppression, always results in injustice. Um, And that doesn't that just make you long for King Jesus? You know, it just makes you long for that, that contrast between our worldly rulers um, and then the and then King Jesus. Yeah, it's just such a I just felt so like, oh, come Lord Jesus (laughs) when I was reading this. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it, though, that he does say that there's this there's these people who keep themselves separate. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it, that there were communities of Jews who loved God and kept his law, even though they were living in the minority. Um, these were God's people and they were obviously doing it enough to get noticed. And potentially it wasn't just Haman that hated them. There might have been other people that also struggled with with the Jews, um, with, with God's people. Um, and I think it must have taken courage in that time to live in that kind of kingdom where the king is that kind of king, uh, to live with integrity and to live with obedience to God. And it kind of encouraged me. Yeah, that's good. Hi, so that we've, Helen's references a little bit, but the king here doesn't come out especially well again, does it, in this interaction? How is our view of him reinforced here and what what characteristics do we see yet again about this all-powerful ruling monarch? I think he he's easily, I don't know if this is a word, but he's easily manipulatable. I guess he, he seems kind of vain um, and proud, doesn't he? Like just from reading from chapter one to here. Um, and I, I think he's easy prey for a bit of buttering up. Um, and then I guess just I was really struck by his cruelty and he must have known how many men, women and children would die as a result of this edict. And yet he's like, OK, yeah, go and do it. And I just thought it's just so inhuman. Um, but I guess his desire for power and his desire uh, to make a name for himself meant that he had that kind of power to be able to just be like, these people aren't quite fitting in with what I want to do. This guy's kind of angry at them. Okay, go and do it. I just, I just thought he's weak, isn't he? But I guess, yeah, he almost wants the trappings and the 
um, benefits of being a king without actually having to do any of the ruling. You know, time and time again, he abdicates responsibility for the big issues, doesn't he? Because effectively, he said, you know, as I was reading this, I was like, he's basically, you know, the, the Nazis used to say, used to call the Holocaust the final solution for the Jewish problem. And I feel, you know, there's echoes of this here. This, this is Xerxes being like, oh, great. You can get rid of this people group who I tolerate, but I recognize could cause me problems because they're not totally integrated. So can you go and deal with this issue for me? I don't have to have anything to do with it and I can just sit on my throne and be the king. I think the thing that struck me most about the king, I guess, especially thinking about what you were saying, Helen, about the contrast that that helps us draw with King Jesus, is he's just so passive and he doesn't care to do to look into any of the details. So Haman brings him all this stuff, which is at best half truth. And he's like, yeah, OK, then just and I, yeah, it just was helpful for my heart to think, praise God that King Jesus cares about the details of our lives and there's no such ruse that's able to persuade King Jesus because he knows all things and he cares about the detail. Whereas this king is just so, okay, then you do that. Like with no knowledge or detail, he's just, yeah. It's a, I guess it's another side of his weakness, isn't it? Just that passive doesn't care very much. I see echoes of that though in my own heart. I'm like, I know I'm not a king, but I feel like, as Western Christians, we have a certain amount of power, don't we? And I feel like often I'm probably quite passive about things that I shouldn't be passive about. And, you know, when you think of the oppression of people worldwide and just something as simple as like who makes your clothes or who picks the fruit, you know, and are they well paid and all these things, you just kind of it's easy, isn't it, to, to take the passive step. You're not the actual one oppressing them, so you don't feel super bad about it. But actually, you're just as much the oppressor if you say nothing and stand aside and let it happen. Yeah, and, and in this little section as well, when the king is, you know, Haman basically bribes him with 10,000 talents, which is an awful lot of money, a lot of money in those days. And the king's like, yeah, sure, do what you want. And um, I just I just really saw myself in that, how often... The world offers me other things and my heart is drawn away from where it should be, from doing the right thing or from from Jesus. How often I listen to those whispers of this is a good thing. This is, you know, this is better than another path that's laid before you. I just, yeah, I at first I was so annoyed with the king and I am still annoyed with him even now reading it. But but there is so much more of me in the king, I think than in, for example, Mordecai in this situation. Yeah, we've been studying a lot about slavery in homeschool um, and just the way, just how awful it was. And we look back now, don't we? And we're like, that was awful. I can't believe that was happening. Um, And yet there were people very much like us uh, then who did sit back and just let it happen. And it was for financial benefit. Like they were like, we can't tend our fields without these slaves. It's bad for our economy. Um, and yet slavery is still such a huge thing nowadays. Um, and yet we, I don't know, do we look into it? Do we take action? Um, or are people in a hundred years time going to look back at us as Christians living um, in this century and say, I can't believe they didn't do more. Um, yeah. find it really challenging. I guess the um, 
application of this for in thinking about it with a biblical theology lens on is the people of God are still persecuted today, aren't they, all around the world? And yeah, what um what 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 are some good applications for us who are living in a non-persecution state currently that we yeah, so that silence that you talked about, Mary, and not wanting to be silent about these things, how can we be um, standing alongside our brothers and sisters that are persecuted? Workers or uh, believers in places where it is illegal or very dangerous to be believers need to know, don't they, that there are other believers around the world standing in solidarity with them. Uh, I do think as well, you know, um as Christians, we're kind of called to live faithfully in this really difficult and dark world, even under the persecu- uh, under the shadow of persecution and death. So in this country at the moment, we don't have those issues, but I would argue that it's massively creeping in and there's quite a few um, bills coming through Parliament in the minute at the moment that is potentially going to start causing us some problems in some of our issues that we would say the Bible speaks directly into, but we will soon not be able to speak to people directly about within law. And so it is creeping in. And so I just think one of the ways that we can really support these people is by living godly lives. These are people who attempt to live a godly life and remain faithful to Jesus, even though the shadow of persecution and death is so much greater for them than us. Who are we in our relatively conducive environment to not do that also, to not attempt to do that also? As like living in solidarity with them. If I was somebody living and working in a country and I was where I was actively being persecuted and then I heard that there were Christians elsewhere who weren't fighting the same fight you know who weren't speaking out when able to who weren't sharing when able to I think I'd I'd feel more alone I think we need to make sure that we're doing these things while we can in solidarity with these people who do it even under the shadow of persecution and death And I think there's something to be said for reaching out to refugees uh, where we are um, in the countries that we're in, especially um, people groups who end up in our churches. Like, how can we love them and show them that we are in solidarity with them? Um, How can we... It's hard, isn't it, to connect with people around the world who are kind of faceless to us because you know, we kind of know vaguely where it is that people are being persecuted. Um, I mean, the country that I serve in, there are many persecuted Christians. But I guess it's it's sometimes going, isn't it? And and seeing for yourself and, and going and weeping with them and praying with them and loving them. I think we, I think it's really great to pray and give from a distance. But I think probably one of the best things is is to go for yourself. I mean, obviously, it's coronavirus at the moment but it's not going to be forever and I think going to these places and and giving them a face for them to be like oh these people really do love us and they really you know are behind us and even though we're stuck here and we can't we can't have the kind of lives that they have um there are brothers and sisters and they they want the best for us I think there's almost a bit of a disconnect uh between the world of kind of 
slightly more easy persecution in the West and other places and then the world of kind of quite difficult and harsh persecution and there's these kind of organizations that to attempt to bridge the gap um, and I think some churches try to bridge the gap but how can we do that better I don't know as a church and as individuals how can we really show these people that we are we love them and we're in solidarity with them it's a, it's a big question Mary what's some of those do you know the names of some of those organizations People like Open Doors. Um, Christian Solidarity Worldwide is a, another good organisation. I think I'm yeah. just really, the reason, I know this isn't like meant to be an advert thing, but I'm just really keen, you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to listen to something like this and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. But then you get overwhelmed with choices and you, if you Google something, you get overwhelmed with choices and you don't necessarily know where to go, do you? So Open Doors and Christian Solidarity Worldwide are a couple of places that people can look. If you've got missionaries in these countries at your churches, um, go and talk to them and be like, how can I be better at praying for the persecuted church? Uh, what does it look like in, in your country for Christians to be persecuted? Um, can I come and visit you and see it for myself? Um, and then like this huge gap between the two worlds can kind of be a bit more bridged, can't it? Yeah, I think the thing I've realised recently, because obviously Paul and Helen are living with us, and so they're following quite closely situations in certain African countries and then would share that with me. And the thing that struck me is our, our media, the mainstream media in the UK, just never covers stories about Christians being persecuted overseas. And we've got to, as Christians in the UK actively seek out that information because it's not going to fall onto our laps the way that the latest coronavirus restriction easing or you know we're so Britain-centric aren't we in our or American or the western news and so that's really struck me living with Paul and Helen how we've got to take responsibility to seek out information rather than just pretend that it's not happening and bad things aren't happening to Christians because it's not landing on our laps via the BBC. So that's been a helpful challenge to me, living with people that are overseas and have got those contacts, that there are horrible things happening to Christians, but it's my responsibility to know that and to be praying faithfully for that rather than almost metaphorically sticking my fingers in my ears because it's not landing into my inbox itself every day. Um, but yeah, I've really benefited over um, Ramadan for the last 40 days from having um, praying for a different country each day. So if you, you know, signing up to that material, then does it then helps things land into your inbox, doesn't it? That are going to help you pray and open your eyes to the things that are going on out there. Um, I'm aware that this is quite a dark chapter and it ends with, um, sadly, there's it says, doesn't it, in... Susa, there was um, chaos and confusion whilst the king and Haman sat down for a drink. So if you're looking at that, it's pretty bleak. And these two um, very bad characters are on the ascendancy. But I guess as, as Christians, we want to read every chapter in the Bible, don't we? Looking for signs of God's grace and what is God doing in this? And especially in Esther, like we talked about last week, where God's name isn't mentioned, where do we see, ladies, in this story, little signs and glimmers of hope and grace? I think it would be good to look at the whole casting of the lots. Um, 
that goes on. I mean, they used to do this. Um, obviously, these people don't believe in our God, but they used to cast lots to kind of get divine direction for what, for what you know, whether what they should do and, and whether they should do things. And so uh, when we see Haman casting lots for when he's going to do this massive annihilation of God's people, um, I think we can see there. So we actually, he casts lots in the first month, doesn't he? Mm. But uh, the lots land on the annihilation happening in the 12th month, which is really amazing, isn't it? It could have landed on the second month, which wouldn't have been very long um, for God's rescue plan to have happened. I mean, it could have happened, but there's this whole long time, isn't there, um, for something to to be done to... To, to prevent it and you can just see God in it can't you that the day this edict went out the next day would have been um Passover that God's people would have been celebrating Passover which would have I hope to them even in the terror and horror of realizing that the king this powerful king wanted to kill all of their people um they would have celebrated this this time of remembering when another nation wanted to annihilate them and God rescued them. We need to remember that this edict went out throughout the entire massive empire. So this edict came out from Iran, but of the sort of Iranian area, but actually would have had to have made its way down to North Sudan, probably on foot or by, you know, or by animal. And so it would have taken months for this edict to get down to those Jews in Northern Sudan. And they're suddenly like, what and so I I that just really challenged me as I was reading it I was like how must they have felt I hope that they looked at that and said oh this edict came out around the time of Passover and they were reminded of that deliverance Passover reminds us that God delivers us from horrificness and he's faithful and he's promised that he will do it again yeah, and I guess that right at the end of the last chapter two, there's also that glimmer, isn't there, that that good thing that Mordecai did has been written down by the king. And I think that's like a little hint to us of, oh, you know, in a story when something happens and you know that there's a reason for it, it's that whole idea, isn't it, of God's going to use that as well in his purposes to bring something good here. We can see, can't we, that there's, here there's a there is an authority that's higher than human authority who is determining all of this like Helen said with the dice and like you said Jill with uh, what's happened just before this chapter um and I think that's really encouraging for us isn't it in in this world of you know persecution of Christians and just all sorts of oppression and leaders who we don't necessarily agree with um, I think even in, in these things, even in persecution, we know, don't we, that God's in control. Um, even though he allows these things for ha- to happen, they're not out of control for him and he's working in them. You know, we have human leaders, but our identity and loyalty is as members of God's kingdom, which is kind of bigger and better. And we should be governed by that, shouldn't we? We should be governed by love. And when that means sometimes standing up for things, even when it's against the, the flow. Um, that's, it's the right thing to do, isn't it? And, and it, we, have a, we have a king who's higher than earthly kings. Yeah, and I think that's, we need to look at this um, issue of the lots and God being in tr- control and higher than everything in the greater context of the book of Esther. Because, 
you know, things like the casting of the lots God uses as an, and is in control of. And it's really important for us as we read Esther, but also as we live our daily lives, that we recognize that God doesn't achieve his ends despite these terrible things happening and the injustices. He, he achieves them through them. And we see that primarily through his work, you know, through the work of Jesus on the cross his his um his ultimate aim was achieved through that awfulness through that persecution through that injustice to bring about good things to save us and so we need to keep that in mind don't we as we look at what's going on with these lots and this a potential annihilation of a people group god always achieves his aims sometimes he uses persecution and injustice mm. And that we've, we need to help each other believe that, don't we, in the hard circumstances that we live through, that actually it's not the circumstances that need to change, but it's remembering that God can work through the hardest of circumstances to bring his good purposes. And I, I am not very good at remembering that when my tire needs changing or, you know, when a tiny thing happens, I don't see that as... Um, oh, isn't this a great opportunity for God's grace to be shown? I just get frustrated and annoyed that my agenda has been diverted. But um, yeah, that's a great role that we can play in each other's lives, can't can't we, in helping each other to see, hey, what might God be doing in this hard mm. thing? What what good thing is he achieving? Because he is at work. Um, I'd, I'd like your help with that, ladies, because I'm not <laughs> very good at seeing that in the moment myself. Yeah, and I also think that we can really encourage each other because that's a circumstances issue, isn't it? But I also think often we can fret about decisions or things, you know, or think, things we've done or not done. And I think we need to recognize, don't we, that ultimately God will use those as well. We might make decisions, do things that are flawed or in retrospect, not great, but God will still work through those circumstances I think so often when, you know, I'm uh, generally an anxious person and when I'm making decisions, it's hard um, to, sometimes I think it's hard for me to see outside of myself and recognize actually, no matter what decision I make, God will use it and use it well. Thanks, ladies. That's a great place, I think, for us to end and um, try and rub that into our hearts this week that, yeah, it's a big view of God, isn't it? And a smaller view of us, which is a helpful place for our hearts to rest. Thanks so much for listening, people. And we will see you next week for the next section in Esther.